0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: From Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Skipping down. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Let's pray. Father we your people here gathered in this church come to you asking you eager to hear from you asking you to speak and teach and guide and inform and shape and we pray that you would use your word by the power of your spirit to do that Lord this morning we have before us a passage that will help us to think about government and I pray that you would open our minds that and you would teach us some and you would shape us some that we would be more in line with your thinking and your perspective on this you have instituted authority over us help us to think rightly about it help us to live under it and with it and against it in proper ways Lord would you open us to hear from you would you speak not just to us but to your body around the world today that you would shape a people to be worshipers of you holy in your sight a part of every culture and in some way against every culture it's a difficult balance Lord give us wisdom shape us rightly Towards that end, Lord, I ask you to give clarity to my words and to my thinking. Inhabit this place. Commission your spirit to guide and to teach, I pray. And I pray it in Christ's name and for the glory of his church, his bride. Amen. Amen. Winston Churchill reportedly once said, Democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the other kinds. Gotta love Churchill's subtle wit. He has a way with words that allows him to express something that many of us often feel but have a difficult time putting into language government is a problem. Even the best form of governments are problems, like democracy. Hitler came to power in a democratic situation. Modern democracies, even like the United States, have managed to give rise to rampant corruption and evil and injustice. And that's not to mention authoritarian states, be they communist or fascist, dictatorships or the the anarchy of rule by local warlord. As Don Carson points out in a recent book, Christ and Culture Revisited, In the 20th century alone, not counting losses due to warfare, 170 million people were murdered by their own governments. That's staggering. Think about that. Throw aside losses due to war, in one century, over half the size of the population of the United States killed by its own leaders. Government is a problem, a huge problem, Be wary of the state and praise God for the state. Be wary of government and give thanks to God for government, both. Because, despite all of its problems, government is a gift, a gracious gift given by God to people so as to restrain evil and and help protect this place, this fragile world that we live in sure it's full of problems it doesn't do that perfectly that's obvious so our trust cannot be must not be in government but rather must be in the God who reigns over the government but he has given us this gift and we must figure out how to interact with it in a responsible way we're going to think about that a little bit from this text today in the second half of Acts chapter 19 last week in the first half of Acts chapter 19 We saw a couple of snapshots of Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus. They were two kind of overlaid snapshots happening over roughly the same two-and-a-half-year period or so. Paul's in this city, and he is regularly preaching and teaching, ministering the word of the Lord. And that ministry, along with numerous dramatic miraculous signs, is serving to press the gospel into the whole region of Asia, which is essentially like the western part of what is modern-day Turkey. The gospel's going out, people are hearing about it everywhere as they come to Ephesus and then leave and go back and around, and churches are planted in this whole area. The name of the Lord Jesus is lifted up through the ministry of the word and through miraculous sign. He is shown in his delivering power, and people are seeing it. They are fearing the Lord. They are extolling his name. That changed the church, we saw. The church saw Christ in a new and a profound way and it turned to Him. It was pulled to Him and to trust Him and to throw away all the other stuff, all those magic arts that the church had been trusting in to protect and provide. It turned away from all that stuff to Christ. And as a result, it was radically changed and it served to send forth the gospel in even more power. That was the end of last week's section, verse 20. And then today, verse 21 begins, literally, these things having been finished... These things having been accomplished, there's a sense of the the mission's fulfilled. Now what's next? Paul's going to move on. He's got somewhere else to go. But before he does, the second half of 19 happens, and that's our passage for this morning. Let me read the text, Acts chapter 19, verses 21 to 41. Now, after these events... Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing and some another, For the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand, wanting to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, The men of Ephesus... Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. When he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. The passage begins, as I said, with a, a sense of closure, that this is mission accomplished and Paul's ready to move on. He has planned and thought and prayed and is convinced in the spirit that he needs to make one more pass around the region where he's already ministered and then move on to Rome. And really we can see in the book of Romans that that's just a stepping stone to move on to Spain. Paul's always about planting churches where there are not churches, and he feels this whole region is kind of reached. He wants to move on. But before we can do that, this riot erupts. And verses 23 to 27 reveal the root of this great disturbance. It all starts with one man and his concern for his wealth. He's a silversmith, and and he and his co-workers, their their trade was to make little silver shrines, little statues that would aid in the worship of Artemis, things you could have in your home or you would take to the temple to worship with. Artemis was a Greek goddess, one of the, the Greek mythological goddesses. And with... She was one of the two things that Ephesus was famous for. We saw last week that Ephesus was famous for its occult practices. And the second thing it was well known for was the great temple of the goddess Artemis. The story goes, we see it here even in this passage, that at some point in the distant past, a a stone image of Artemis had fallen out of the sky near this city as if the goddess was selecting, this is the place where I want to be worshipped. And so the people had responded by building a great big temple there. This thing was very large. It was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens, so it was a pretty big place. And it drew people from all around the region to come and to worship there, and so it was an economic boon for the town. People would come, buy these silver things, amongst other stuff, take up lodging, buy food. You know, it was, a, it was an economic engine for the town, and it was a a force of protection, because to attack Ephesus would be to attack the chosen home of the goddess Artemis, which in some people's minds was a bad idea. They didn't want to pick on a goddess, and so it was kind of served as like a wall around the city as well. So it was a big big deal to, in that town, be honoring and to be protecting of the goddess. But Demetrius doesn't care about that at all. That's not his main concern end of verse 24 he and his fellow craftsmen made those shrines and it made them rich he says to them this brings us no little business you know this is where we have our wealth and this guy is wandering he and his teachers are wandering all around the region tearing apart our business convincing people that what we make is worthless this is not the great goddess Artemis is being dishonored. This is, we're losing our market share. Or really, we're losing the market. The whole thing's going away. These are cassette tape manufacturers upset at the inventor of the CD. <laughs> with no thought about the quality, with no thought about the substance, with no thought is the CD actually better than the cassette tape? Is what Paul says actually true? The, the concern is this hurts my bottom line, I'm going to stop it. But he can't be quite that crass, and so he spins it. He can't even sell that to all the, the fellow silversmiths. So he spins it a little bit. It's not just that our business is hurt, but you know what? You can cue the sentimental music. The great goddess Artemis is now going to be dishonored, and she might lose her magnificence, and we can't have that, can we? And that one sticks. And the crowd forms, and they're enraged, and the riot kicks off. in verses 24 to 38, th- 28 to 34 then describe the riot. Shouting out praise to Artemis, they start rushing through the streets. It says the whole town is in a commotion as they sweep towards the theater. There would have been 25,000 seats in the theater. And with the whole town in a commotion, it seems likely that many of those seats were full. And the crowd is enraged. They swept up a couple of Christians. Foreigners they were easy targets. They sweep them up and carry them along to the theater with them. They can't find Paul one they really want But they go into the theater, and it's just mass chaos Nobody understands who started it what's going on some people are yelling one thing some people are yelling another a lot of people are yelling Why are we yelling? They don't know what's going on, but that's perfectly okay with Artemis with with Demetrius He's getting what he wants He doesn't care about the truth. He's getting people to act so as to shut down this message that's hurting him economically. People are yelling, they're going crazy. It must have been very frightening for the Christians who were there. The crowd is revved up about Artemis. In fact, some of the Jews realize that the crowd is so revved up about Artemis, and they don't know what the real issue is, but they do know that we don't worship Artemis either. And so eventually, the Jews evidently stand up Alexander to say, his argument seems to be, we're not with them either. But that doesn't get voiced, in fact. They get shouted down as well. Crowds raging on. Another two hours, pointless shouting. Even the, uh, the Asiarchs, who are the first mention of the government in this passage, actually. Asiarchs are leaders of the region of Asia and they realize things are totally out of control. Paul, don't go there. There's no reason to believe that they're Christians, but they are friends of his, and they say, Paul, stay out of there until we can bring it under control. And that finally happens in verses 35 to 41. The populace is irrationally crazy, stirred up by one man towards who knows what, but they want to do something. And then finally in steps another government official, the elected city clerk. He would have been the... He would have been the clerk of the, essentially think of him like a city clerk, a city council. The guy who ran the meetings and wrote the laws and, and distributed things. So he, he's an elected official. He's not a real high ruling official. But he often would have um, control of these assembly meetings. And so he stands up and kind of puts an air of this is an assembly meeting. We're in the place where we have the assembly meetings. I'm the one who leads the assembly meetings. Let me kind of call this thing to order now. It seems like he's been kind of watching for the right moment because when he begins to speak, he knows who the ringleader is and he seems to indicate that he has an idea of what the issue is, that it's not really one of substance. But he calls them together and he says essentially four things. Verse 36, he says, This has nothing to do with Artemis. She's not being threatened, so calm down second thing. Furthermore, these people who've been dragged in here, they're innocent. They haven't done anything. They don't rob the temple. They're not sacrilegious. They don't blaspheme the goddess Artemis. We should let them go. Thirdly, if Demetrius does have an issue with anybody, go to court like you're supposed to. It's a little bit of a chastisement here. The courts are open as they always are. There are people who do this sort of thing, and if it's beyond a court measure, we have regular, three times every month, we have a regular assembly meeting. He should go there if he's actually got a real legal problem. This thing, fourthly, that we're doing is itself illegal. We're throwing a riot, and we're in danger of the Romans coming and punishing us for this civil disorder. So, let's go home. And he dismisses the assembly like he would commonly, like his job was. And that's the end of the passage. Which, as you read it, has a certain bit of action in it, but then you stop and you look at it, and there's a certain bit of oddness to it. There's not very much here at all about Paul. Just a little bit in the beginning, saying that he was already going to leave town, and so this isn't what pushed him out. But there's nothing mentioned about him throughout. He doesn't speak. He doesn't preach. The gospel's not explicitly stated somewhere. It just seems to be a story about a riot how it came and how it went. So, as a Christian, you kind of look at this passage and say, That's interesting, but what's here? Well, there is something here. It's here to teach us, it's placed in the, the book of Acts to teach everybody who reads the book. Something about God's perspective on government. What he thinks about government, what he uses government for, and how we should think about government under his overall reign. So we're going to talk about that a little bit today. But let me try to put it into a sentence where I'm going this morning. It's a sentence, main point here. Give thanks for God's gift of government. Give thanks for God's gift of government but only trust in God's perfect government in Christ. So two parts there. Give thanks for what God's done in giving us government. We should be thankful for that. But we should only trust in God's perfect government in Christ. So there's two halves there. Start with the first half about God's gift of government. My first observation this morning. God in grace has established government to restrain evil in the world. God in grace. This is what we're talking about is a gracious gift of God. This is not a random human development as civilization evolves, we kind of rise up to have government. God reigns over all of the world and all of history and all the happenings of history. And one of the things He has done wisely and graciously is to give government for the sake of restraining evil. That's what explicitly is taught in several places in the New Testament. Peter teaches it in 1 Peter chapter 2. Paul teaches it in Romans 13. Read a little bit of that earlier, but listen to Romans 13 two, and following some selected statements. Those who resist the authorities resist what God has appointed. Those authorities, they are a terror, not to good conduct, but to bad. Those authorities are those who carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. God has appointed governmental authorities to be a terror against evil, to pour out His wrath on wrongdoers, to restrain violence and sin and wickedness. That's what Paul and Peter are getting at. He has given governmental authority, appointed them, given governmental authorities to restrain evil. All kinds of evil. Perfectly? Obviously not. Clearly not. I'll have a little more to say about that later. But even the worst of states, imagine the worst possible government, all kinds of evil and wicked states have good laws in them. All kinds of states have laws about you can't kill so-and-so, and and if you do, we're going to try to punish you in some way. Even the most corrupt states still try to control graft in some way, Still try to assure that when you go to the marketplace and you pay for this much for that much, you get what you paid for. There are laws about that even in the worst of states. Government is God's gracious gift to us considering the fact that we are fallen sinful people and we need some form of restraint on that sinfulness to keep us from just devolving into utter self-destructive anarchy. But there's one particular evil that God especially intends government to restrain. And it's illustrated in this passage. By the grace of God, government often serves to restrain evil attempts to suppress the proclamation of the gospel. The key evil focused on here is an an attempt to stop the spread of the gospel. And God is especially motivated to restrain that evil attempt. He uses government often. Surely what this passage is illustrating. Demetrius has a concern, but it is not about truth. It is not about God. It is not about the gospel. It is not about forgiveness. It's purely about money. And he never stops and thinks. When Paul says that things made by hands aren't God's, and when Paul says that, that uh, Artemis has no honor and no value and is maybe demonic, but nothing more than that, but Jesus is God come in flesh. When Paul says that, is that true? He never stops and thinks about that, though he should. Remember last week's passage. The whole region, the whole town, Jew and Gentile alike, had seen evidence of this power encounter between Jesus and the demonic. And had seen Jesus rise above that. And fear covered everybody. The name of Jesus was extolled everywhere, Demetrius included. Everybody knew. Everybody had seen something. But Demetrius throws it off and moves back to himself. We are so like that. Dead to spiritual reality, focused on ourselves. And feeding ourselves and fueling what self wants, we will suppress the truth to get what we're after. And so Demetrius himself is missing out on life, which is bad enough, but the great evil is that he wants to act so that everybody else misses out on life too. Think about what would happen if he were to succeed. the gospel would not be proclaimed. People would not hear about the problem they have with God, but God's great solution. No one would know about God's love come and taken on flesh so as to die and save them, and they would be trapped in worship of a rock. Dead in sin, doomed and not knowing it. And Demetrius says, fine by me, as long as I get rich. And God says, not fine by me. I will not allow that to happen. I have concern for people. I have love for them, and I want them to know, and so I will not allow you to stop that, Demetrius. Just like happened in Corinth. Corinth. People try to shut down the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus says to Paul, Speak, and I am going to assure that you are enabled to speak. I will protect you. That's what he does here. And he uses government to make that happen. The Asiarchs defend Paul, the clerk defuses the riot. He uses government for that. The authorities are God's agents to restrain evil that would shut down the gospel seen in this passage and in fact it is a constant subtle theme throughout the whole book of Acts which is why we need to think about this and consider it it's a constant theme The very first verse of the the book says that Luke, under the inspiration of God, is writing to a man named Theophilus. And nobody really knows who he is, but some people have theorized that perhaps he's a low-level Roman official because of how consistently Luke hits on this theme of the government and the gospel are not at odds. Sure, everywhere Paul goes, a riot breaks out, and it's not Paul's fault. It's not. And you look through the book and you see constantly. Somebody kills Stephen. Who kills Stephen? People taking the law into their own hands, which Rome would have a big problem with. Mobs chase Paul out of city after city and attempt to kill a Roman citizen, which Rome would have a big problem with. When the court case finally comes before a Roman proconsul, he says, Psst, he throws it out. He doesn't even let it, let it happen because he says, there's no case here. This is totally fine, totally legal. And as we move on, we're going to see again and again and again there are more Roman officials, it's going to become more frequent, governors and kings who sit and patiently listen to the gospel while they are defending Paul from people who would try to assassinate him. As you're reading that, you're saying, the bad people here are not the Christians. They're everybody who's trying to kill the Christians illegally. The Christians obey the law. There's no conflict here between the government and between the gospel. The constant theme worked through the book of Acts. He uses the government to actually provide a safe avenue to to clear the playing field and to protect the spread of the gospel. It's God's sovereign hand over his world. And thank God that he still does that sort of thing today. God still uses government as one of his tools to restrain evil attempts to stop the spread of the gospel. Think about how in the United States and in many, many countries in the world, there are scores of people who hate the gospel. I mean, not not just disagree, hate it. And would do anything in their power to stop its spread. And yet... Laws in these lands, like the United States and many, many others, still provide for protection for the gospel, still provide for rights like the right to assemble, the right to talk about whatever we want to talk about, the right to believe whatever we are convinced about, and the right to talk to other people and try to persuade them of that. The right to be protected and not have someone barge in here legally and hurt us or chase us out or burn down our building. That's a wonderful blessing. Provided by laws and governments the world over. God's use of government restraining evil that would try to shut down his message and prevent it from going to people. God has given us a great gift. But to say that, I'm sure a number of you are thinking, Yeah, but what about the other half of the story? Because while that's the emphasis of this chapter and of this book, there's another half. There's another side to this story. Because sure, plenty of countries have those kinds of laws, Steve, and plenty of countries don't. And yeah, sure, Rome protected Paul and Rome killed Paul. And sure, the United States has laws that allow for the the spread of the gospel, but we're fooling ourselves if we think it's like it used to be and that it will always be that way. There's another side of the story, something else we need to think about, and that's the second observation. The first observation, though, we need to kind of keep in mind that God has given us a gift. Government is good. Praise God for government. It restrains evil, particularly evil that would stop the spread of the gospel but the other reality is, is true as well and it's even hinted at in this passage it's not explicitly stated because of the context in which Luke is writing but it's hinted at if you look at what the town clerk said in rationalizing his dismissal of the riot you look at what he said there in verses 35 to 37 he's wrong He's missed it. It's probably a good thing Paul wasn't there because Paul would have cleared some stuff up that would have inflamed the riot. He says, essentially, Artemis is not threatened. Let me assure you, Artemis is not threatened here. Everybody knows how great Artemis is. These guys aren't blasphemers of her. Don't worry about it. Go home. And everybody breathes a huge sigh of relief and leaves. But he's misunderstood something the invasion of the kingdom of God into Asia has come expressly against Artemis. It has come expressly against her and everything else that sets itself up against the kingdom of God. Christ has come specifically to destroy the demonic hold on Ephesus, specifically to dethrone Artemis specifically to dethrone greedy capitalism and to dethrone sinful hedonism and national pride and a thousand other idolatries that all people and all countries and therefore all governments cling to and enforce and build up. The kingdom of God comes into the world specifically to destroy the kingdom of the United States and to destroy the kingdom of China and to destroy the kingdom of the United Kingdom and the Sudan and South Africa and Iraq and every kingdom of man. There is no sustainable across the board alliance between God of heaven and earth and the authority of human beings. Paul would make that clear. The clerk missed it. If he had come to more clearly understand it and as people come to more clearly understand it, We see that fundamentally when the chips are all down, human government and God are on opposite sides of the table. So there's a great tension here. God has given government as a gift. So be thankful for that. But be wary of it too, because ultimately God and human government are at odds. Here's the second observation in a sentence. Pledge allegiance to the flag, but pledge ultimate allegiance to the Lord Christ. Pledge allegiance to the flag, to the state, to the government, but pledge ultimate allegiance. Above that, pledge allegiance to the Lord Christ I say pledge allegiance to the flag to try to capture the main theme of the passage, noting the usefulness and the blessing that God has provided for us in government. To capture the idea of Romans 13 where it says submit to those authorities placed over you. They are there for your good. And we don't get to pick and choose what we submit to. We can't pick, I like this slot, seems reasonable to me, I'll submit to that one. This one, No. This tax I can afford and seems okay. I'll pay that one, but not this one. We don't get to pick and choose. That's still me being an authority deciding. It's the other way around. We are under, we must obey, submit to. Now, just as with any authority, we can't follow it into sin. The Bible does talk about all kinds of different authorities. The Bible, for instance, sets up husbands as in authority over wives. But a wife should say, if a husband ever says sin, she should say, No. I must obey Christ, not you. That's sin. Same thing with governments. We have to follow them all the way up to the border of sin and then say, No. Do to me whatever you will, but I cannot go there. I am ultimately submitted to Christ. Now, in a democratic society, we have unique opportunities to resist the government, ways provided for us to resist the government and to, to argue with it over laws and taxes and whatnot. So we can take those, that's okay. I'm just trying to make a, a simple point here. There's a lot more we talk about there and civil disobedience and that kind of stuff. I'm just trying to make a simple point that we are under authority. God has established an authority and we are under it. And we should be pledging allegiance to this state in such a way that we adorn the gospel of grace. That is, we make the gospel that we believe and that we live look good. Good. Live as model citizens. So that when the government looks upon us, it is inclined to believe something good there. Something is right there. I've got a lot of trouble. A government official should look and say, I've got a lot of trouble, and none of it comes from those Christians. The Asiarchs that warned Paul, it says in the text that they were his friends. Paul faced a lot of trouble in Ephesus. We can read in other places he faced a lot of hardship, but somehow he carried himself through that in a way that the highest officials of the area looked at him and said, hmm, they looked upon him favorably. He befriended them. We should live likewise. We should live so that they are disposed towards us to see us as good citizens. Those who submit to authority. Serve the greater good seek the good of the city that we live in but don't place your trust there all governments will eventually find themselves in opposition to the kingdom of God which is the other side of the New Testament story Peter, Paul, killed by Rome and if you keep reading you realize that the New Testament is really clear that while Uh, Much of this period is existing under the protection of Rome. And much of us now live in countries that are gracious towards the gospel, that all of history is moving towards a great Babylon. One great, massive governmental authority that sets itself up strongly against God. That propagates untold evils. All the governments of the world will become gradually, progressively more and more anti Christ and will bind themselves together to form a chief governmental authority set up against God. That is reality. And it is also reality that the king will come and destroy her. We have to live with that reality. We pledge allegiance to the state, but ultimate allegiance to the king, the government that is coming, God's ruling Christ. All authority, in fact, all of God's working in government, in this sense, is prophetic. You can see it most clearly in in how God worked the kingship in Israel. Who was the king of Israel? Not Hezekiah, not Solomon, not David, not Saul. The king of Israel is God himself. But people didn't want that and threw it off. And he said, okay, I'll give you another king. I'll give you another ruler. And you need it because before that time, everybody did what was right in his own eyes. refrain of judges you need a king you need a ruler and you won't want me I'll give you another one but you'll see how bad that is and you'll long for me and I'm coming all of government is prophetic we submit to it now but we look ahead and say it's pointing to something better something supreme someone who comes and actually restrains all evil perfectly someone who makes sure that the gospel goes to the ends of the earth and that we live in its blessings. We must be citizens of countries. We must be good citizens, pledge allegiance to those countries. But our hope must ultimately be fixed on God who reigns over them. I tried to think about how to connect this to life where we're living right now. There's a, that's a lot of theory about government. And it occurs to me that we're in an election cycle here. We've got about two months till we're going to elect a president and a bunch of other people. And from time to time, I observe Christians. who Everybody agrees with me that we're supposed to be good citizens, but we're not supposed to live bound to the government. We're supposed to hope in God. Everybody agrees with that. But from time to time, I observe Christians who don't act like they believe it who seem to live as if their, their lives are seeming to say that if so-and-so is not elected, the end is near. The end is near if so-and-so is elected or not. In reality, if this law does not pass, the whole world's going down the tubes. So everything that we have must be invested in electing this person or shooting down that referendum or or. or I am not saying, here's the caution, I am not saying we should not be politically involved. That comes with be good citizens. I am saying, what does your heart attitude reveal about where your trust actually lies? Is the world revolving around your candidate being elected? It's not. If the perfect candidate is elected, the trajectory is still the same. Again, caution, not saying we shouldn't be politically involved. I see people who, it seems to me, as I'm trying to read between the lines, are fundamentally driven by fear, are angry when so-and-so wins and -and so-and-so loses. Look at that in your lives. Are you looking at this election cycle? and your particular candidate, whoever that may be, at whatever level of government you're thinking about, are you looking at this election cycle angry and afraid, summoned to battle as if this is the battle? It isn't. It is a battle. It's not the battle. We have a king who reigns over everything. We must responsibly think about which government do we want to install. At the end of the day, He reigns. He'll even use imperfect governments like he did in this chapter to protect the gospel. He'll work whatever he knows is best. As you approach this election cycle, ask yourself, is my hope, is my my trust centered in my government or in my God? My hope in horses and chariots or in the name of the Lord God? He has given us a great gift in government, and we should be thankful for it and pledge allegiance to it. But ultimately, we must only trust in Him. Let me pray. Father, would you help us to think about Would you help us to continue to think about what our role is in relation to things like politics and government and legislation, local and national both? Would you help us to trust you in the processes of election, processes of campaigning, Lord, we look to you and we ask you to place over our country and over our state and over our cities wise rulers who will serve to protect the peace and provide opportunity for the exchange of ideas, to protect the opportunity to spread the gospel. But Lord, when that doesn't happen here, And when it doesn't happen in other places, would you give grace to your people to trust you and to follow you, to hope in you? Bless our government, I ask, Lord. Bless us as citizens under it and bring in the perfect and righteous government that is coming, the kingdom of God in its fullness with the king of glory at its head. Do that, Lord, I pray, in his name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission.